Well, welcome everybody. So glad you could be here today and uh, joining us for another great weekend of worship together. And what I'd like for us to do as we get started is the same thing we've been doing these past few weeks. We've been spending some time in prayer, um, talking to God about our Go West campaign. Now, if you don't know what our Go West campaign is, then please go to our website at newlifenwa.com slash go west or open up the app and just tap the Go West icon and it will um, open up the website to all the information we've released so far about our Go West campaign. God's just doing some remarkable things. Um, in April, this thing really gets pushed into overdrive and I'm excited about uh, what I'm gonna be sharing with you um, in the weeks ahead, but if you would, would we just start today with a word of prayer? Would you join me? Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you today, and as we have these last many weeks, we just lay before you this Go West campaign. Lord, we believe that you've got big plans for our church, that, that Lord, the future, Lord, what's out in front of us? We can envision many people in the Northwest Arkansas area coming to know you as their personal Lord and Savior. Lord, as we take these steps of faith moving forward, would you just go before us like you have, provide for us like you already have, Lord, and just show us the way. Lord, we don't claim to have it all figured out, but we trust you, and you do have it all figured out. So, Lord, we trust you in this. Please help us with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was saying, it is great to see all of you here today, and we are continuing our series called Grounded. Now, in this series, we have been studying the core essential doctrines, or the core teachings of the Bible. And if you recall in this series, we've um, unpacked the doctrine of God and sin, and Jesus, salvation, Holy Spirit, the church, and last week, we spent time um, unpacking uh, what the Bible teaches us about communion, well, we have two more sermons in this series. We have today and we have next week. And friends, let me just tell you, you don't want to miss next week. In fact, I mean, I want you to go ahead and circle your calendars, plan on being here next week. If you know a friend, invite them to church. I know we're still living under this pandemic, but um, if you've got a friend that, that is uh, comfortable joining you in church, invite them. This would be a great weekend to do that because I am finishing this series talking about what the Bible teaches us about the second coming of Jesus. I love preaching about the second coming of Jesus and how wonderful that day will be. But that's next week, and I invite you to be here. Don't miss it. Be here. Join us online. Um, it's it's going to be a great way to bring this series to a conclusion. Today, however, we're going to be studying about what the Bible teaches us about heaven. What the Bible teaches us about heaven. Just out of curiosity, how many of you in here today or watching online is looking forward to heaven? Oh yeah, sure. Lots of hands going up, as it should be. As Christians, we should all be looking forward to heaven. Heaven is the eternal reward that awaits for everybody in God's family. Let, let me share with you what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Praise to be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. This inheritance that's being talked about in this scripture is in the afterlife. And I'll tell you, the Bible is not quiet, it is not silent in communicating just how wonderful heaven is going to be. And we ask the question, just how wonderful is heaven going to be? Well, 1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us that no eye has seen, 
No ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Man, that sounds pretty good to me. How does that sound to you? No eye has seen, no mind has seen. We, we can't even imagine what it is. We can't wrap our minds around fully what it is that God has prepared for those who love him. But even though we can't fully conceive it, it certainly has not stopped people from trying to figure out exactly what heaven is going to be like. Yeah, a few years ago, a movie was released that just took the Christian world by storm called Heaven is for Real. Do you remember this movie? I mean, do you remember it? Uh, the movie is based off a book by the same title, Heaven is Re- Re- for Real. And and it was released back in 2010. Maybe you, you've read it. I actually have a copy of it myself. But the story is told of a little boy named Colton Burpo, who his parents believe he visited heaven when he was just four years of age. And, and that happened when he was having surgery for an burst appendix that nearly took his life. And after Colton recovered from that surgery, and according to his parents, he started to report things Uh, about things that he had seen that led his parents to believe that he possibly went to heaven, especially by listening to him describe what he saw. Now, I I don't know what you're thinking at this moment, but I'm not here to dog the movie. I'm not here to dog the book. I'm I'm certainly not here to judge anybody's salvation or their experience or anything like that. I mean, I'll be honest with you. My wife, Kirsten, and I, when this movie came out, we went and saw the movie, and we enjoyed it for what it was. It was a movie. But I'll tell you what does concern me a little bit about these kinds of things. It's when a Christian will watch a movie or read a book like this. And really, there are numerous books. There's numerous stories just like this one. But they'll read those things or be exposed to those things. And then they'll walk away thinking this. Well, now I really know what heaven is going to be like. Because did you hear about the little boy who almost died and he went to heaven and he saw all these things and he came back and told everybody what heaven is going to be like? I'm glad he did that because now I really know. It does concern me a little bit when I hear Christians talk that way. Uh, There is something I think in all of us that wants it to be the case. We want things like that to be true. We want to be able to say somebody was there and they, they told us what it was like. Do you, do you think that is because we've got this desire, we've got this hunger to know exactly what comes next? I mean, I think in our desire to know and conceive all the details about what lies behind the veil of eternity, I think a story like this, heaven is for real, I think it's got some grabbing power. You know, there are a handful of people um, in the Bible who actually did die and were brought back to life. Did you know that? There are accounts in the Bible of people who died and were brought back to life. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus, and Lazarus got sick and died, and, and they placed his dead body in the tomb, and that's where he was for four days. Jesus comes to the family to mourn with them, to be with them. And what actually happens is Jesus raises Lazarus back from the dead. It is this incredible miracle in the Bible. However, there is not one mention or hint in the scripture as to where Lazarus was during those four days. We we don't have any understanding or glimpse. Where did he go? Was he just asleep? The Bible doesn't tell us. Yeah, Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead, but there, in that account, not one mention of anything that had to do with the afterlife, though. 
You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, raised a guy from the dead. His name was Eutychus, and he fell out of a three-story window, and he died. And, but there's no report of where Eutychus went when he died, that time between his death and when, when Paul brought him back to life. There's not one biblical person that ever died, visited heaven, and came back to tell us about their experience in the afterlife. Maybe the closest thing we get to something like that is that there were four biblical authors who had visions of heaven. Not death and they came back from life. Not, not one of those. It wasn't a near-death experience or anything like that. But they had visions. Isaiah and Ezekiel, both were Old Testament prophets. They had a vision like that. Paul, Paul and John, both in the New Testament, they were apostles. They had such visions. And, but in all honesty, in comparative to the rest of the Bible... Uh, the details that they gave about those visions are uh, really comparatively um, sparse, really. But all four of these guys focused in those visions on God's glory. They mentioned in these visions their own fear and shame about being in the presence of such glory, what they were seeing. They instinctively knew that in the state they were in, they were unworthy to be there. They, they seemed to indicate that. Truthfully, though, None of their visions, these four biblical um, authors that are writing about these visions, none of their visions really reflect or describe, you know, like heaven is for real and, and some of the accounts that we hear about today. Here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. In John chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus is having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. And Jesus says to him, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the Son of Man. So what do I take away? What should we take away from all that? I mean, I certainly don't deny that God could use a near-death experience to get our attention. And I know I've spoken with a number of you right here in our New Life family that have shared with me a, a near-death experience or something that you saw and how that has brought you to a closer desire to follow Jesus or that got your attention in some way. I don't deny at all that, that the Lord uses those kind of experiences to get our attention. And I don't disagree that there are many feel-good stories out there about heaven that make for great books and, and, and movies that captivate our attention and may actually help point us in heaven's direction. But the reality is this, that everything that God wants us to know about heaven is found in the Bible. And that's what I really want you to hear today, because there's a lot of competing messages out there, and there's a lot of description and ideas about what heaven is like, but I'm telling you today, everything that God wants you and me to know about heaven is found in the Bible. The Bible is God's word, it's, it's, it's God's guide to us about such things like this. So the question is what this whole series is about, is what does the Bible say about these things? What does the Bible teach us about heaven? Well, I want you to know today that the Bible does absolutely teach us this truth, Heaven is for real. I hope you know that today. The, the, the Bible absolutely affirms the reality that heaven is real. Listen to this. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, our eternal home, our permanent residence isn't here on earth. It's going to be in heaven, and we eagerly await the return of Christ. Uh, Jesus told this to his disciples in John 14, verse 1 to 3. He said to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house has many rooms. 
Now, that's a great image, isn't it? In my father's house, many rooms. And Jesus said, if it wasn't that way, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can be with where I am. Oh yeah, heaven is absolutely real. It's not some, you know, figment of anybody's imagination. No, heaven is real. And that is the place that Jesus is preparing for those who have followed him in this lifetime. It's the place that Jesus has prepared for the church, the the saved. Perhaps the Bible's most detailed glimpse of eternity comes from one of Jesus' disciples named John. John was allowed to have a glimpse, a vision of, of heaven, a snapshot, if you will. And, and what God allowed John to see, I, I mean, by all accounts, the only thing that we can say about it is that sounds awesome. Now, you might recall some of these details that I'll share with you from our our series that we did last summer through the book of Revelation, because that series ended with this wonderful glimpse of heaven. And so, if you remember that series, this will be very familiar to you. But in this vision, John, he refers to heaven as God's dwelling place. It's like, this is where now God is dwelling with people. That alone, right there, that heaven is the place where God dwells with his people, makes it worth it, doesn't it? God is there. We're going to be able to talk with God. We're going to know him. We're going to walk with God. The the mysteries that we have today are all going to be gone. We are going to be together with God. That rings loud and clear from John's vision of heaven. And it will be real. Perhaps even more real. Perhaps even more physical than anything that you and I have ever experienced on this side of the return of Christ. Here, just look at it with me. Just let me refresh your memory of what John said heaven's going to be like. He said in chapter 21 of Revelation verse 9, he said, One of the seven angels who had, been, who had had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out, coming out of heaven from God. This is his vision of the afterlife. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, (coughs) as long as it was high. He he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. Friends, bottom line, this place is awesome that Paul is describing or John is describing. Glory, brilliance, precious, jewels, clear, great, gold, big, long, wide. These are all the words that John uses to describe just how magnificent and awesome this place is that he saw. You know, when, when reading this very carefully, you're going to see that what he saw, this, this cube, is like a, a metaphor. Cities that people um, uh, are people, or cities are where people congregate, aren't they? A city is a symbol of community. And this particular city 
symbolizes what? What he sees, this city coming down. This particular city symbolizes the community of God. Now just think about some of these details that he shares with us. There were 12 gates that bear the names of Israel's 12 tribes. These is representation of God's Old Testament people. And then there are 12 foundations that bear the 12 names of Christ's apostles. These are the New Testament people. This place right here that, Paul, that John is describing, it is a place for the community of believers. And even in the very dimensions that he gives us, it tells us something very significant about this place. The city, as described by what John saw, is, is a perfect cube. It says 12,000 stadia long, wide, and high. This would be in our measurements 1,500 miles. 1,500 square miles. That's 1,500 miles high. I mean, th this place is a perfect cube of 1,500 miles. Let me give you a little, you know, just an idea of comparison. That if this place that, that John is describing were in the United States, it would stretch from east to west, from Atlanta, Georgia, all the way to Denver, Colorado. That's how far it would go. And then if you stretch it from north to south, it would go from, you know, Montreal, Canada, all the way down to Key West, Florida. This place that John is seeing is absolutely huge. You know, someone tried to illustrate the dimensions this way using a globe. They, they brought out a globe, and then they created a, a, a cube out of paper, a little cardboard box, perfect cube, that had the a, a dimensions to scale sitting on top of the globe as an illustration of what these dimensions would look like if it was sitting on top of the United States. And I think there's two very important lessons that we can learn from just the dimensions of this city alone. The, the first thing we can learn is this from the dimensions. Heaven is perfect. Heaven's perfect. A cube is considered the perfect you know, geometrical form, really. John speaks of heaven as being this perfect place. It's very design and dimensions shout to its perfection. Secondly, the dimensions teach us that heaven is a large place. The size of this city is tremendous. Now, if my research is correct, and you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty close, Northwest Arkansas, where we live, you know, Bella Vista down to, you know, um, you know Fayetteville, a little bit further south, beyond the Silent Springs, that whole Northwest Arkansas area, is roughly 3,200 square miles. This is about in that neighborhood. That's a good size area, but it takes a while to drive through all of that. What John is describing here in Revelation, though, he's describing a space that would cover 2,250,000 square miles. I mean, that right there is larger than the country of India. India measures a little over 2 million square miles. So what John is describing is larger than the country of India. To, I'll tell you, you really start measuring this thing out, it's so big, its dimensions are so big, that it goes well beyond the Earth's atmosphere and into space. I mean, I mean, if you go back to that, the image of the globe with the box on, you're going to see that it extends way above the surface of the earth, all the way up into space. In fact, to give you a little understanding, if the, if dimensions, if the dimensions here were actually a building, like a skyscraper that was as tall as what, what John is describing here, 
If you look at that and say, oh, we'll be generous and give it 12 feet between each story, the building would be over 600,000 stories tall. This is an incredibly large place. It's a perfect place, and it's an incredibly large place. And do you know what this place is going to be filled with? It's going to be filled with lots and lots of people. There will be people in heaven from every nation, every tribe, every people group, every language, every color of skin will be represented in heaven. It will just be filled with lots of people. But I'll tell you, one of the best things of all is that heaven will be filled with many of our friends and family who has gone on before us. How awesome is it going to be to be reunited with those who have been cut off from us by death? Remember from our, earlier in our series, death is what? Death is a consequence of sin. But in heaven, everything will be made right again. And we will be reunited with those who have been separated from us by death. And how, I, mean, I don't even think I have the words. How incredibly wonderful will that day be to never be separated again? And then with that kind of thought, though, we're not going to be separated from each other, we'll be reunited. I tell you, I've looked at scriptures. I can't find anywhere where scripture says that we lose our individuality once we get into heaven. In fact, I think quite the opposite. I'll give you a few examples. When Jesus uh, went through what we know today as the transfiguration and Moses and Elijah came to them and, they, and there was this incredible moment. How did we know that was Moses and Elijah? I think it's because they've always been Moses and Elijah, even in the afterlife. I think about the, the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. Their identity seemed to stay there in the afterlife. You know, King David had a son who died. He made this statement. He goes, that son cannot come back to me, but I can go to him. You know, in heaven, we're going to have new heavenly bodies, but I certainly believe I see no indication from the scriptures that the people we knew here on earth, that we're somehow not going to know in, in heaven. No, no, no. We're going to know people in heaven just like we knew them here on earth. I don't believe that our uniqueness as individuals, is going to be any different in heaven. We're all going to have recognizable personalities. I don't think we're going to be a sea of robots. I don't think that's what heaven is going to be like. But, but I can tell you, there, there's a lot of things we speculate about heaven, but one thing that has no speculation at all, and this is actually the very best thing about heaven, it's this, God will be there. When you think about what will be central to all the inhabitants of heaven, it will be God. And one, uh, I'll tell you, maybe the greatest thing that we get to do in heaven will be spending time in adoring our heavenly Father. So it's going to be an awesome place. And yeah, we maintain, I think, our identities. We are our personalities. But the Bible is very clear. We are going to get new bodies. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen from over here? We're going to have new glorified bodies. Bodies. Just listen to what um, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, this earthly tent he's talking about is our physical bodies. He says, if, if our earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, he says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that was sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It was sown in dishonor. It was raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Bottom line, when all this happens, we get new bodies. They are going to be eternal bodies. They are going to be bodies that will last forever, like God's original design to live forever. They're going to last for all eternity. And you know what? You don't have to watch your diet. You don't have to worry about your cholesterol. There's no more medications. No, 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 no. No more aches, no more pains. Our bodies won't hurt. They will do what we want them to do. We're going to have these glorified bodies. And I'm going to tell you something. Eternity, as described in the Bible, is going to be amazing. And now John wrote other things about this vision. Back to Revelation 21. If you look at verse 22, he says this. He makes this observation. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its light. The, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of all the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, it's here. John makes his observation. He didn't see a temple. And this right here, my friends, is an extremely important detail about heaven. And it's easily missed. But he said, I didn't see a temple. You know, well, what did he see? He saw the dimensions of the city. He saw that it was in a perfect cube. Do you know that in the Bible, there is only one other perfect cube that is described in the scriptures? Do you know what it is? It was the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple. That's the only other perfect cube in the Bible. The, the Holy of Holies was the innermost room of the temple, and it's where God dwelled between the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant. And the Holy of Holies had an extremely limited access. In fact, the high priest was the only one who was allowed to go in there, and he could only go in there one time per year. I mean, you might argue that it was kind of hard to get to God back in those days. But it will not be difficult in heaven because in heaven, the city itself becomes the holy of holies. We constantly live in the presence of God. And that's the promise of Revelation chapter 21 verse 3. When, when, when John writes, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, look, the dwelling place is now among the people and he, God, will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, which is what God has desired from the earliest days of history to be the God of the people of his creation. And in heaven, this perfect cube, which is symbolic of the, the next holy of holies, where there's not limited access. No, there is full access to God, and he will dwell with his people forever. The reality of what we're studying is this. The presence of God is what makes heaven, heaven. 
And finally, that veil that has separated us from God and Scripture, we read about it. This, this, there's a veil between this world and the next one. It will be gone. And we will have full and free access to our Heavenly Father. Somebody once said it like this. We will enjoy the benefits of heaven, but the beauty of heaven is seeing God. Best thing about heaven is God will be there. Not only will God be there, our loved ones will be there. Friends and family, those who have died in Christ have gone before us. They'll all be there, be this wonderful reunion. You know the second best thing about heaven will be? Satan won't be there. Satan won't be there. One of the best things about heaven is the very fact that the devil will not be allowed. This means, think about it. This means that we will never, ever be bothered by temptation again. Because the tempter himself will be gone. Can you imagine the joy and the freedom that will be ours when temptation is a thing of the past? It's hard to imagine, but it's the case. John writes this in his vision, chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel, the, the angel showed me a river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great city, uh, street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So from John's vision of eternity, he learns that in heaven, there will no longer be any curse at all. This is a reference back to the very earliest days of the Bible. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden when Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world. And after that, the world was cursed. God cursed the world. There's so many things that changed in a moment. I mean, a curse was introduced. Um, they, they couldn't walk and talk with God like they used to. They had to work by the sweat of their brow. There'd be pain. There would be death. All, all these consequences, everything was cursed. But before sin, it wasn't that way. And in heaven, this curse will be lifted. It's been said like this, that we live in a world right now where there is constant threat of pain. Pain from a mother giving childbirth, the pain of a, of a child at the parent's funeral. I mean, there's just pain all around us. Everything that's wrong and everything that's broken in this world is the direct result of sin. Our world has been cursed, but in eternity, that curse will absolutely be lifted and it's hard for us today to comprehend what life will be like in a place that's not fallen and that's not cursed. And I think that's why the scriptures teach us no eye can see, no mind can comprehend what is in store for those that are a part of God's family because it would just have a hard time envisioning a world where sin and temptation and the devil doesn't dwell. That's why it's hard for us to conceive it. I, tell, I don't know how you're hearing this today, but I can tell you how I'm studying this and how I'm hearing it. I, I'm, I'm basically walking away from this today with this conclusion. Heaven sounds wonderful. 
And if you walk out of here today with that same conclusion, heaven sounds wonderful, then, then we have done something good here today. And there's really only one other question that any of us could ask, any of us should ask. It's probably the most important question that any of us could ask at the conclusion of this series in Grounded. And the question is this, how do I reserve my spot? How do I make sure that there is a spot reserved for me in heaven. Because from the description that we just read here today, what we've learned from the Bible, isn't it agreeable with all of us that that's where we want to be? Is in heaven? How do I reserve my spot? Well, the Bible clearly outlines it for us, and I've tried to clearly outline it from Scripture in this series. How do you reserve your spot in heaven? Well, you gotta believe. You know, we are saved by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. We have to believe. What does it believe exactly? Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins. We believe with everything we've got. We accept the gospel. So those who believe and accept this gospel, you know what they do? They repent of their sins. They change their minds. They change their attitude about sin. They go from I love sin to now I hate sin. So belief leads to repentance of sins. That leads to confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. He is my leader. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my heavenly Father. Confession, baptism, be baptized. Every Christian in the New Testament, they were baptized. They believed, they repented, they were baptized. And what was the result? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. So how would I gotta do to reserve my spot? Believe, repent of sins, confess Christ as Lord, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit and live every single day of your life for him. Yes, you're still gonna sin. Yes, you're gonna mess up. None of us are perfect and God knows it and he has mercy on us, thank goodness. How do I reserve my spot? Believe, repent, confess, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Receive that seal on your heart by God until the day of redemption and live for him. Friends, let me pray for you. Dear God, I just thank you, Lord, that we could be here in this place today that your word so clearly explains to us what it is to look forward to, how to live our lives today, what you have prepared for us, Lord. And I pray that we pull our strength and our knowledge and everything from your word. Lord, I pray that we walk out of here today not just saying that heaven's gonna be great, but committed to live our lives so that one day we'll be there. That, Lord, because you have prepared this great place in front of us, because you have done so much for me, you died on the cross for me, and I love you back, Lord. I am going to live my life in accordance to your word. I'm going to obey your commands. I'm going to live an upright life. I'm going to watch my doctrine and my life closely. Lord, I pray that that would be our commitment as we leave this place today. Lord, I thank you for saving us. I thank you, Lord, that you can see us even in our weakness, and you can confirm to us that you care more about where we're going than where we've been, that you died on the cross for us. Lord, help us to receive, help us to respond. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.